And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one le- there will not be left there one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to consuls. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is at the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or look, There he is. Do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, we're looking at uh, Mark chapter 13, which is also called the Olivet Discourse. If you read commentaries or study Bibles, they'll call it Olivet Discourse because it's taken place on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus has given this long teaching on a specific subject. Now, how do we take this, this chapter? Is this teaching about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in A.D. 70, that already happened? Or is it about his return at the end of the world, or is it both? That's the main question here. And then the second, the follow-up question would be, how should we apply this chapter today? If it's about something that's already happened in Jerusalem, why does it matter to us today? If it is about something that is yet to come, uh, what do we do with all these signs and, and specific issues that Jesus is addressing? So I'd like to offer a framework for understanding this admittedly difficult chapter by showing you the flow of the passage, okay? So I want to just read and walk through it with you and hopefully let us see the context and the connections. Now, be gracious, okay? Uh, I will solve some of your problems today. I will show you how some of these things will make sense. And some of them I probably won't solve. And you'll probably disagree with me on some of these things. That's okay. But I want to give you a framework that I think works better than anything else. And as we look through the flow, go with the flow of the passage, and hopefully put it in the right perspective, then we'll spend the rest of the sermon on application because I think this passage is actually very applicable and is meant to be relevant for us today, okay? So the flow of the passage, and I have my notes here. I have lots of stuff to share. Uh, if you are taking notes, I didn't give you any space on the little piece of paper to take notes on the flow of the passage, so turn it over, make notes on the other side, or you can just get my notes uh, just a couple hours after the service is done today on the website and, and, uh, and look at what I meant to say. So, <clears throat> Okay, so let me work through this. If you have your Bibles open, I think it would be helpful to you. Okay, verses 1 through 2 
uh, the very beginning. What's the setting of this teaching? The disciples are admiring the temple in Jerusalem, and this was, it was a magnificent thing. One of the wonders of the ancient world, one of the biggest uh, worship spaces, religious spaces in the ancient world. Uh, Herod the king uh, was many things, but one thing that he was, he was a good builder. And, and he made this, he expanded the, this, this temple complex and made it into this beautiful thing. You could see it from far away as you approached the city. It was glistening in the sun, this, this white stone and gold. I mean, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. So it was rightly so that the disciples are looking at the temple and saying, Jesus, look at this wonderful, wonderful building. Look at this beauty here. And Jesus responds to that by saying, there will be a time when everything you see will be completely destroyed to the point that you will not have one stone on top of another. So that means complete destruction. Now this is verses 1 and 2, the setting. They're admiring the temple. Jesus says the temple will be destroyed. Now go to verses 3 and 4. Jesus and his disciples leave the temple complex and they go to the Mount of Olives here they, they sit down, overlooking the temple, and they're continuing this conversation. So this is not a separate teaching. This is a continuation of what was started at the temple. And here, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew ask Jesus two questions, not one, two questions. This is crucial for understanding this chapter. There are two questions here, and Jesus is going to answer both of them, but he's going to distinguish the two realities. Okay, what's the first question? It is, when will these things be? When will these things be, they ask. Meaning, in context, when will the temple be destroyed? When will it happen that all these things you're talking about, this stone not being one on top of another, when will it be done? That's the timing question, when. And the second question is this. What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? This question is not about the destruction of temp the temple as such, but it is about the end of the world. Now, in the Jewish mind, now these are people steeped in the, in the Old Testament literature. In their minds, the destruction of the temple signals something. Something is very important happening if God takes his hand of favor out of his, from his people and he allows the temple to be destroyed. This signals the end of the world. They're reading Daniel. And in fact, in this question, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished, is the language of Daniel. They're, they're, almost, they're alluding to Daniel 12. And they're asking the question, how are we to process the end of the world in light of the destruction of the temple. Jesus answers both questions in turn, and he distinguishes these two events, the destruction of the temple and the end of the world, the coming of the Son of Man. He is saying those are two expectations. Yes, there's some overlap, but they are separate questions that need to be dealt with separately. Now, if you read... Your study Bible or the commentaries or talk to other believers, you will find that some see this whole chapter, the whole Olivet Discourse, as relating to the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And they're looking at this whole chapter as, as describing something that's already happened. There are others who see this whole chapter as relating to the second coming of Christ. So it's either, people say, either all about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, or it is all about the second coming of Christ. I think, and I'm not the only person who thinks that, many commentators think that, that the best way to read it is to see Jesus as teaching on both, teaching on both realities, the destruction of the temple and the coming of the, his second coming in glory and in power. Now, if you look at verses 5 through 23, that's the next section. That's the longest section here. I think this whole section is essentially about the destruction of the temple and the events happening around it. Now, here's my evidence for that. Notice how local it sounds. The feel here is very local. It's Judean. It's Jerusalem. Uh, he's talking about people in Judea fleeing to the mountains, running away from the city as the city falls. He's talking about uh, the concern of it happening in winter, meaning there, there are weather issues. It could just be too cold, too rainy to run. And so he's saying, pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. The teaching here in this section is for the people in and around Jerusalem. And the goal is to prepare them for the siege and destruction of the city that is coming. It's not that far away as Jesus is talking about it. Look at verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Now, I think this verse is a clue that Jesus is talking to the people who know what's happening in Jerusalem, and Mark is writing to the people who are understanding the current events in and around Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is quoting from Daniel, which is likely what the disciples are thinking about. He's quoting about this mysterious abomination of desolation, meaning that something so awful, so disgusting happens at the temple that it makes it desolate. It, it breaks something here. Something falls apart. It's, it's so wrong that it, 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 it removes the favor, okay? This is what he's talking about, this mysterious abomination of desolation. It's a desecration of the temple, desecration of worship. But then Mark, who's writing, he's recording these words of Jesus, probably based on Peter's recollection. Mark then inserts a note. He says, let the reader understand. Well, let the reader understand what? Who are the readers? Were the readers, the first readers of the Gospel of Mark, these are probably people that are living in the 60s, right? Or, or maybe late 50s, 60s, late 60s. And Jerusalem falls in AD 70. So this is people who are right around that time. Mark, remember, Mark is writing later than what Jesus is, when Jesus is speaking here. And Mark is writing to the, the people that know what's happening in Jerusalem. And Mark is saying, let the reader understand, meaning pay attention, something may be happening in Jerusalem and the temple right now that will help you connect the dots between what Jesus is predicting here and what is about, about to happen. Now, I'll give you one interpretation of what they might have seen. I'm not 
convinced this is exactly the right thing and there are no other views, but I think it fits. Now, during the, the Jewish revolt, it was a rebellion that eventually resulted in Rome coming and destroying the city and the temple. But until then, the zealots were in charge. So this, these are these ultra-nationalist patriots. They want to restore the Jewish state and put uh, a Davidic king on the throne in Jerusalem. So they're rebelling against Rome. They actually find a guy named Phineas. They find this guy and make him the high priest. And Josephus, who's writing the history and he's telling us what happened around that time, he says this guy was so... Um, ill-equipped and ill-fitted for this role that the other priests wept. So there was a sense in Jerusalem that an abomination is happening, that this guy should never be made high priest. And it feels like everybody is just playing games. And they're putting on this show by putting this, this man who's not supposed to be a priest, he's an illegitimate priest, into the temple. Now, if that's what Mark may have in mind, maybe, you know, maybe, then it makes sense about, it makes sense as to what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying something's going to happen in Jerusalem, something's going to happen in the temple. Pay attention, and you will see how this abomination of desolation will signal to you that the destruction of the temple is about to happen, which, of course, is exactly what happened what Josephus called a horrid piece of wickedness, referring to this illegitimate priest, leads then to Rome finally coming, sacking the city and completely destroying the temple under the general Titus in A.D. 70. Now look at verse 7. Jesus says, This must take place, but the end is not yet. What is this? This is the destruction of the temple. We're in this section where Jesus is talking almost exclusively about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And Jesus says, pay attention, all these things are going to happen, but don't confuse this with the end of the world. Now, I mean, notice how clear Jesus is. He says, this must take place, but the end is not yet. And so he's helping his disciples to discern and he's helping them understand that, yes, the destruction of the temple will happen, but this is just one of the events in, the, in God's large plan, and don't expect the end of the world to come right then. He's saying these are the birth pains. Yes, things are in motion. His, redemptive history is moving forward. But he's saying don't assume that when the temple falls, the Lord will automatically come back. Now, this is verses 5 through 23. I think it's all about the destruction of the temple. Now, let's go to verse 24 through 27. This is the next section. And this is where Jesus answers their second question. And the second question was, when will all these things be accomplished? When will it all come to a head? When will it all result in this climactic day of the Lord and the judgment day when the Messiah will return? That's the question. And Jesus talks about his return and the end of human history in verses 24 through 27. Notice the difference now in the feel of this passage versus the previous passage. The previous passage felt local. 
Judea, Jerusalem, run to the mountains, wintertime. Here, the scale is cosmic. The sun and the moon are going to go dark. The stars will fall down, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Jesus is talking about a cataclysmic event when the whole creation will tremble at the coming of the Lord. Now, if, if you read through it and if you follow kind of the, the flow of the passage, the context of the passage, you see this shift. Jesus is no longer talking about a local event that matters only for the generation of the disciples who are listening to them, to him. Now he's talking about something that matters to the whole world, the sun and the moon and the stars and the spiritual powers of heaven. Then the sun will come back with great power and glory. He will come from heaven on earth and he will send out his angels, his messengers to gather his people together into his kingdom. And now they will rule with him forever. Now this is about the second coming. This is about his return and the culmination of human history. Verses 24 through 27. Now go to the next section, verses 28 through 31. This is an illustration, and there's going to be another one. Two illustrations. Two questions, two passages in response to those two questions separately, and now there's two illustrations. The first one is in verses 28 through 31, and this relates to the destruction of the temple. Now he's going back to the first question. If you see leaves on a fig tree, summer is near. That's the illustration. If you see what Jesus has predicted happening, if you see it happening, the signs happening, the abomination of desolation, the destruction of the temple is near. Now, if you're using the ESV in verse 29, it says, He is near. He is at the gates. This is a, an interpretive decision. It's in the context. It's not what the Greek demands, but this is, depends on the context you see here. If you think it's about the second coming, you're going to translate it as he. If you think of, if it is about the destruction of the temple, you will translate it as it. It is near. Either one, Greek-wise, either one is fine, but it depends on the context. I think in this context, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple and not his return in glory. And if we take this section as relating to the destruction of the temple, verse 30 now makes perfect sense. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What are the things? Abomination of desolation, the fall of the city, the destruction of the temple. And it all happened within that generation, right? Jesus is speaking probably in the 30s, now fast forward to A.D. 70. This is the same people are alive. This is the same generation within the scope of the same generation. What Jesus said would happen actually happened. Now verses 32 through 37. Another illustration. This one is responding to the second question. And this one is about the second coming. The main point here is that no one knows exactly when Jesus will return. Now, if the previous sections in this chapter are given us signs, are given us a pattern, are given us a chronology, 
Why would Jesus say, nobody knows? Isn't he trying to tell us how to discern? But if you take those portions as pertaining to the destruction of the temple, now this passage makes sense. Because he's saying, yes, you will know what's coming in your generation. And please pay attention, Jesus says, pay attention to what I'm saying, because I am proving to you, you can trust all my promises. Here's a specific promise, a specific prediction with specific signs, and people who are standing here with me, people who are reading the Gospel of Mark, will see it happen. And they did. And now he's making other promises. He's describing, he's describing his second coming, and he's saying, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Even Jesus in his humanity does not know. Only the Father it's going to unfold according to the sovereign plan of God, and it can happen any time. And the illustration is, is the master of the house going on a journey, and the servants are waiting for him to return, and he can come back any time. He can come in the morning, he can come in the middle of the night, and the point is, be ready, don't sleep, be alert, be on your guard, because he can return any time. Now, that's the second coming. Now, here's the natural question that should be, if it isn't on your mind, it should be. Why is Jesus jumping around so much? Why not make it clearer? And the answer to that is that he is teaching in a specific style. He is using apocalyptic genre. And if you have read Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation, you know exactly what it's supposed to sound like. It is this, this intense use of images. It is jumping around. It is not giving you a clear timeline. It is telling you about these cosmic events alongside the very specific historical events. Now you see that in Daniel very clearly. And this is what the, the disciples are actually recalling and thinking about. So Jesus is simply responding to their two questions when will the temple be destroyed? And when will you return and inaugurate this eternal kingdom in the end of history? And he's doing that in an apocalyptic style. If you're familiar with the style, a lot of these things make sense. Not all of these things. I'm, I don't want to pretend that I figured everything out in this chapter. No, I have a couple of questions still. But I think most of it makes sense if you break it down just in this way, in this kind of a flow. Two questions. Two specific responses and two illustrations that fit those questions. Okay, have I confused you more or have I clarified anything at all in this chapter? Okay, all right, so one, one thumb, two thumbs, okay. I got two, okay, Matt is down. Okay, sit with this chapter a little bit if, if it's unclear. Sit with it and try to read it in terms of these two realities, the destruction of the temple and the prediction of, of Christ's return. And now I'm going to get to the, I think, the meat of the sermon, because if you look at the tone of this chapter, and I, I've learned this from Pastor Josh. Pastor Josh often asks, what's the tone of the passage? Because the tone of the passage should be the tone of the message, should be the tone of the sermon. So what is the tone of this passage? How is Jesus speaking about these events? The tone is pastoral. 
The tone is he's trying to care for his people. He's trying to teach and instruct and prepare his people for these kinds of events. One commentator said, On the whole, Jesus seems to have been more interested in preparing his disciples for the future than he was in predicting it. He was more interested in preparing us for the future than predicting the future. This chapter is meant to be practical. It's meant to be applicable. It's meant to be relevant. Now, it was, if you look at it as large portions of this pertaining to the destruction of the temple, certainly it was relevant for that generation, right? They're actually paying attention to the signs and preparing for the sacking of the city and the destruction of the temple. Very relevant to them, immediately relevant. But we too can draw lessons from what was predicted and already took place. And of course, this chapter is relevant to all who are waiting for Jesus to return. I mean, notice how many imperative statements you see in this chapter. Jesus says, do not be alarmed. Be on your guard. Do not be anxious. Keep awake. These these are all practical things. Because what he actually wants us to take away from this, this chapter is not a chronology, but a changed life. What he wants us to see in, in, these, in these verses that some of them are predictive, absolutely. They're prophetic. But the point of prophecy is actually to change your life right now and to prepare you, not simply to predict. So I'm going to give you three lessons or three instructions or three directives from this chapter. And I think all of them are practical and make sense for us today. And I'll try to be brief. Number one, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Now look at how Jesus begins his teaching in verse 5. This is the first thing he says answering the disciples' questions. He says, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. And then he predicts there will be lots of people who come and say, I am the Christ, or trust me and I will make everything better. Follow me and I will explain how all these events actually fit together and how you should, ca- you should join this cause and you should expect these things to happen. And Jesus says, beware, be careful. He says, don't be deceived by them. Be careful whom you believe. Whether it's about what's happening right now and people interpreting these events, or if it's about what is to come. There are many opportunists that try to take advantage of others, even Christians, even the elect. Verses 21 through 22. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ. Or, look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, it happened with the generation of Jesus' first hearers and followers. It happened. The zealots led many people astray saying Jerusalem will rise, we'll have our kingdom now, Rome will be defeated, and what happened? Lots of people died. 
Lots of people suffered unnecessarily. Lots of people got disillusioned in God's promises. It's happening now. Lots of false prophets today. People are saying all sorts of stuff with such fervor and authority. And yet, tomorrow's news line shows you that they were completely wrong. I mean, it's amazing. You look at the predictions. I mean, don't Google, you know, don't, don't try to look for false prophets, you know. <laughs> Just pay attention. You will hear so many people, some in the church, some in the world, saying this is what's going to happen, and it does not happen. There are people who rise up today and say, trust me, I will fix everything. Do you know who can say that? Only the Messiah can say that. Only the Lord can say that. So if you're placing your hope in someone like that, that's an opportunist. This is a false teacher, a false leader who's trying to lead you astray because that is not where your hope should be. Do not be deceived when someone sets a date for Jesus' return. I have to say it. It's so obvious, but I have to say it because every so often, right? Here is somebody on the radio. Here is a church. Here is a movement that says, we have figured out the date of Christ's return. Remember verse 32. Memorize it. Put it on your mirror in the bathroom. Put it somewhere where you can never forget it. Jesus says, Jesus, who, re- who will return, right? The same person, not a different person. Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Can this be any clearer? I, I don't think so. I don't think he could have said it any clearer than he did. He says, no one knows. So if somebody tells you, Jesus is coming, they're a false prophet saying, here is Jesus, here is the Messiah, look at, look at him here. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived when someone lays out a timetable and says, this and that will happen, and then the Lord will return. Let's put it on the clock, right? Let's, let's, let's pay attention, let's connect the dots, and now you know that the Lord is going to come back. Please remember the illustration that Jesus himself gives us to describe the second coming. He says it's like the master who went away on a journey and he left his servants at home and they don't know when he's going to come back. They don't know. He can come back in the morning. He can come back at midnight. He can come back at early dawn. He can come back in the evening. They don't know. He hasn't told them. And so there is no timetable. There's no timeline. You should be ready any time for Jesus to come back. We should be waiting for him all the time. Because when he comes back, we should not be surprised that he's here because we've been waiting. We've been waiting for him. Do not be deceived by false prophecies and predictions of the second coming. On the other hand, do not be deceived thinking he is not coming yet or that you have more time or that he's not going to come at all or that he has already come. Jesus says, be on guard, keep awake, verse 33. If Jesus returns today, are you ready? 
It's a very simple question. If he comes today, are you ready for him? Now, Jesus told his followers in Jerusalem to flee to the mountains when they see the abomination of desolation in Jerusalem. But have you fled to the mountain of Calvary and taken refuge in the cross of Jesus? You've seen the signs. He's already come. He already died. He already rose again. Those are your signs. That's the timetable. Have you run to him? Have you placed your trust in him so now you can wait for his second coming? Augustine says, let us not resist his first coming that we may not tremble at his second. Let us now resist his first coming that we may not tremble at his second. Only those who have welcomed him in his weakness in his suffering for us, in his death for our sins, who saw the empty tomb. Only those are not afraid of his coming in power and glory. Everybody else should be very afraid. When the sun and the moon and the stars are thrown into chaos on that final day of the Lord, what will you hold on to? When the whole world falls apart, how are you going to steady yourself? What is that something, something permanent, something, something eternal, something stable? What can you hold on to when the judgment day comes? When Jesus returns, will you be among those gathered from the four winds to reign with him forever? Or will you, or will you be among those gathered for eternal judgment? Do not be deceived. He is coming. He is coming soon, so stay awake. Number two, do not get distracted. Do not get distracted. Jesus warned us that there will be these false teachers, these opportunistic leaders who will distract the church from its mission. Does that sound relevant? You think the, the destruction of the temple has nothing to do with us today? I mean, these are, these are the lessons for, for right now, for the church of Christ in America today. Amen. Following these false leaders hinders our mission. It hinders it today just as it hindered it in the first century. Thinking is the end of time and stopping everything or overestimating the immediate danger can lead to neglect of the gospel life in ministry. Don't you think the American evangelical church is distracted today? I think so. I think we are terribly distracted. I think that the things that matter to us today the most are not all that important. And the things that should matter to us the most don't seem to matter hardly at all. We need, to, we need to read the Olivet Discourse and we need to apply it to ourselves and say, are we listening to false teachers? Are we falling prey to the deception and that deception is distracting us from the mission? Now look at verse 10. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now he's not saying first in terms of in terms of chronology, 
He's saying first in terms of priority. He's saying the first thing you need to worry about, this new church that's, that's, that's just starting to grow as Mark is writing this gospel. The first priority is the gospel proclamation. And yet people were holding on to Jerusalem. They're holding on to the temple. They were gathering in Jerusalem. And so God destroys the city, destroys the temple, and he scatters the church. And the church becomes international. And all of a sudden, now it is the priority to spread the gospel to all nations. You have missionaries being sent out everywhere. People are scattered. You know, everybody's preaching the gospel, it seems, after the destruction of the temple. And so what Jesus says, as in the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, actually happens after the destruction of the temple. He says, expect persecution and opposition. And expect that this persecution and opposition, this difficult season of suffering, will unleash mission. Persecution and opposition in this text are opportunities for evangelism and presentation of the gospel. The reason these Christians are brought up before councils and governors and governments and all that stuff is because there's opposition and persecution. And they get to share the gospel. I mean, look at the life of Paul. Constantly persecuted, constantly opposed, constantly suffering, and yet look at all the opportunities that he got to share the gospel with so many people and how the church grew, how the kingdom spread. Why do we today think that the church can only be effective in prosperity? Have you asked yourself that? Our, our, our default setting is let's fight for our rights Let's make sure we have enough money. Let's make sure our buildings are nice and clean and protected so that we can spread the gospel. But Jesus says the temple had to be destroyed for the gospel to go forth in the world. This is completely different. Why do we fight for the rights of the church as if our witness depends on the government's favor and protection? Am I stepping on some toes? I hope so. I hope so. Because that is the default of the evangelical church. Unless we have cultural influence, unless we have tremendous resources, unless we have the government's favor, unless we have our person in the White, in, in the white House and in the Senate and in the Congress, unless we have that, we cannot be effective in gospel proclamation. Please don't ever say that to any other person in the world. I don't think anybody thinks about like that because they see the gospel being spread in persecution, in the face of opposition. And the church is growing more in other parts of the world without the favor of the government than it is growing here with that favor. It does not align with what Jesus is teaching here. Lawyers, guns, and money are not the weapons of the church. What is it? Faith, hope, and love, right? Faith, hope, and love. Consistent following of Jesus. Trust in his promises. Spreading the gospel wherever you can. Applying it to your own hearts. Applying it to your own lives, your families, your workplace. Living it out. That's how the kingdom spreads. And that's what Jesus is saying. The modern evangelical church has plenty of pastors and prophets. I don't think we need any more. 
Well, we sorely lack martyrs. We need more martyrs for the gospel to spread. We are to glory in the cross. We are to suffer for his name. This is one of the lessons of the Olivet Discourse. And very briefly, I'll mention another one, the third one. Number three, do not despair. Do not despair. Trust his promises. One of the benefits of reading Mark 13 as this mixture of local uh, prophecies about Jerusalem and the temple relating to that generation, and then these sweeping prophecies about the coming of the Lord at the end of time, one of the advantages of seeing it that way is that you see his promises already have come true, and now he's making other promises. What he said about Jerusalem and the temple already happened. No, it's, it's historical. We know that. General Titus came with a legion, and he destroyed the city. He sacked the city. He raised the temple. That happened. Nobody's arguing about that. Jesus had predicted it. It happened exactly as he had predicted it. And so trust all his other promises. He's proven to you that he's trustworthy. So trust his other promises. Heaven and earth will, not, will pass away, but my words, Jesus says, will not pass away. So don't despair. Trust his promises. Trust also his presence. In verse 11, Jesus promises that when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. There's a promise of the Holy Spirit. As you suffer, as you spread the gospel, as you are persecuted, as you suffer for his name, as you glory in the cross, the Holy Spirit will be there. He will be there with you, and he will help you, and you can trust his presence. And finally, trust his plan. Trust his plan and endure to the end. In verse 23, Jesus says, Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. He's telling you, I know what's going to happen. I told you it's going to happen because I'm the one who makes it happen. And so he says, trust me and trust my plan. Indulge me and let me end with this illustration that may work to tie it all together and then we'll take communion. So yesterday I did all my chores, and then in the late afternoon, I, I settled in to watch, as I usually do, as one does, I settled in to watch the, the Serie A Italian football match between Inter Milan and Roma. Perhaps many of you were, were watching the same, <laughs> the same game. And I went to my, you know, my live stream service to find the game, and, and it, was, it wasn't there. And I had forgotten what time they played, so I'm like, well, I'm going to quickly look it up on my app, see if, what time they play. And of course, I looked it up and I found out the score. Okay? <laughs> that happens sometimes with me. Uh, there's no danger of anybody spoiling the score for me, unless I spoil it myself. Nobody's texting me. Nobody's saying, have you seen that Roma Inter game? You know, <laughs> nobody's doing that. So it's completely safe. I can go for days and, and, and watch, watch the game later. But in this case, I spoiled it myself, and so I looked it up, and it was Roma 2, Inter 4. And I'm an Inter fan, so I'm excited about that. 
And I was like, well, I'm just going to still watch the game, especially knowing they won. So finally, I find the game later on. I turn it on. Heavy rain in the Italian capital. Roma is reeling from the sacking of their coach, uh, the fiery Jose Mourinho. They have a new coach. They're trying to regroup. They're very good at home. They're very defensively good at home. Inter is coming in. Inter is the top team in, in Serie A in Italy, so they're, they're firing all cylinders. Great game, so I'm anticipating a great game. I'm watching the game. Uh, Roma scores first. Or actually, Inter scores first. Roma equalizes, so it's 1-1. And then Roma scores again. Now, I'm starting to worry a little bit at this point. You know, it's halftime. Roma is up by one. And you know, if you watch soccer, you know, 2-1 is a great score. You know, there's, there's already more goals than you had anticipated. <laughs> it's only halftime, and I'm thinking, did I look at the score right? Was it really Inter 4 and Roma 2? I'm starting to get a little worried, but I have to, you know, I'm steadfast. I'm, I'm like, I, I remember two to four, Inter's going to win. So I continue to watch the game, and of course, you know, Inter breaks loose, and they score two more goals and, and win in decisive, decisive fashion. Now, here's the analogy, right? You know where I'm going with this, right? Jesus told us the score, right? So we understand if we trust him, if we trust our eyes, if we trust our ears, if we trust his promises, we know how this is all going to end, right? We know that he's going to win. We know he's going to return. We know he's going to gather the elect from all four directions of the earth. We know we're going to rule with him forever. We know there's going to be perfect justice and perfect peace. We know that. The question is, do we remember that at halftime, right? <laughs> Because I don't know when he's going to come. Maybe we're at halftime. Maybe this is, you know, extra time and it's about to end. I don't know. But can we trust him that the score he told us is going to be the final score will be the final score? That's the, it's a very simple question. Do you trust his plan? Do you trust what he says? Can you actually trust him to do what he said he was going to do? And you thought I was going to mention the Super Bowl. This passage, and we're going to go to communion, this passage, I think, is intensely practical because it tells us to stay awake, be on our guard, be alert, and wait for his return. What he said is going to happen because he's proven to us it's happened already. Lots of his promises have already come true. And if you know how it's going to end, just wait for him. Don't doze off. Wait for him. Don't get distracted. And don't be deceived. Please don't be deceived. Trust him and wait and stay on mission.